Well, I'm driven to observe partly because I think that's a, I really need to pay attention to, to understand what are the stories in this world, uh, the stories of other species in particular, and our relationship to other species. And part of my motivation for writing is that I think there are just phenomenal stories out there in the forests, on the city streets, about how we interact with other species and the lives of those other species. And I do think that as members of the community of life, it behooves us to know those stories. These are our cousins, literally, if we take Darwin seriously, the tree and you and I share a common ancestor, yeah, about a billion years ago, but it, that's our great-great-great-great-grandmother or, or grandfather there. So there's actually a bloodline connection. So in knowing these stories, we come to know the stories of our own family. Welcome to The Well. I am Brandon Edgens. And I am Anson Mount. Now, gird your grid for a big one. What, do you, what does that mean? I knew you'd ask. It's, I'm going to do it. pull a Sean Spicer on you and say, it's like, kafefe. the right people know what it means. All right. Today's episode could change the way you see the world and the way you see yourself in the world. That's a hell of an opener. Am I overselling it? <laughs> you better follow that up, man. I am. I am. You, you will not be disappointed because our guest today is... Dr. David Haskell, the Pulitzer Prize-nominated author of The Forest Unseen, wherein he takes a few square meters of forest floor and watches it very, very intently over this the course of a year. terribly boring, I, it, but it is, it is an epic. It's incredible. <laughs> it's amazing. Because the little struggles happening at every level, I mean, it, it's just, all you need is a magnifying glass and some time, and, and every moment in the forest is this Herculean, <laughs> you know, Greek tragedy of life and death and sex and, you know, even some comical moments Did you stuff. Did you know David when, when we were students? Or no. he made, I think he came in right after we finished. Yeah. Anyways, I'll, I met him as an alum, and I remember him having this gigantic beard. <laughs> beautiful beard. <laughs> and this interesting, quiet guy. I'd never really got to know him until this. And uh, he's a good speaker. Oh, he's an amazing speaker. Trying to uh, edit him down is like trying to sip out of a fire hose. <laughs> it's just, um, we went down and met him in Tennessee, where he took us on a hike to meet one of the subjects of his latest book. Well, I'm just wondering, should we mention his books, like, from the get-go, that he was nominated for this Pulitzer for his first one, or...? Um, we shouldn't. No, no, I'm wondering if we should. We did. Oh, we did? Yeah. Oh, I wasn't listening. You weren't listening. <laughs> oh, my God. We just talked about this. <laughs> but then, I guess the memory of David Haskell's beard was so magnificent that it eclipsed your memory of everything that came before it. <laughs> Speaking of paying attention and being observant, before you got distracted by the memory of David's beard, we were on our way to Swanee, Tennessee, where David took us on a hike through the forest to visit a scene of death, destruction, and rebirth. And along the way, he demonstrated his acute perceptual gifts. If you pay attention to a particular place, there's always some little peculiar, you know, particular thing that's changed, or an, another animal has been by and left some some scat, or new insects and snails have moved into the area. So there are usually things that are a little surprising. Now, 
I consider myself an outdoorsman, and I know that to the uninitiated, a forest can look like a big, undifferentiated mess, a chaotic jumble of textures and noises. And then the various sensory dimensions are always different. So right after it rains, of course, it smells quite different. And during the dry, the quality of the light changes all the time. But a few minutes with David as your guide, the whole forest begins to snap into focus, revealing that, left to my own observational devices, I would have missed everything. And this spring and summer have been, uh, the, the trees have really put on a huge growth spurt. So even in just a few weeks, I, I could barely recognize the place. There. Particularly the spice bush, it seems, really is going crazy this year. Here's a little toad crossing the road. I can't believe you saw that. This toad was tiny, rust-colored, and blended in perfectly with the leaves. But once your brain learned how to pick it out from the visual background noise, suddenly they were everywhere. Most likely hatching from the ponds of a nearby golf course and setting out en masse into the forest to find food. They're just tiny little things, but you know, like a tiny little fingernail. Uh, size bouncing across the wood. The area of forest that we're in on this day is a, a place called Shake Rag Hollow. And Shake Rag is a old growth forest. And if you've never been in an old growth forest, it's immediately palpable that there is a difference between this and other wooded areas because the, the ground is so deciduous and old, it's like walking on a sponge. It's been there, it's, it's essentially prehistoric. And the trees are giant. Yeah, they are. They, I saw the largest persimmon I've ever seen in my life down there. And uh, it's gorgeous and, and thankfully protected. After about a mile's hike down the mountain, we arrive at our destination. A place where a giant has died. The area feels different than the surrounding forest. Brighter and with much, much denser undergrowth. And then looking above us... And that's why. You can see there's a hole in the canopy, but it's not that big, because all those branches have started move, literally growing in. You can see the crowns of all the trees around here mm-hmm. are asymmetrical. So these trees are, are detecting that and moving in to, to make use of that, to, to sup on all that good light that's coming down through the, through the tree hole. We're standing right next to a rather small sugar maple here. You know, this sugar maple is growing quite slowly because it's very shaded. If you look at the bud scars on a twig, every winter the twig ends with a little bud that contains the new growth for next year. So on this uh, maple, you can see the, the buds are starting to form here. And then they leave scars. So here, this is a ring that goes entirely around the twig. You count back from that to the next scar, that's an inch maybe, the next one is half an inch, another half inch, and then maybe a half and an inch. So this has been growing really slowly, I mean it's almost a decade of growth, and it's not even as long as my index finger. Mm. So, what happened here? Why is there a hole in the tree canopy? Why is the sugar maple growing so much more slowly compared to its neighbors? The answer lies before us, 
an enormous fallen green ash tree, and the star of chapter four of David's latest book. So there's a big ash log down across the forest floor, and it's standing, you know, I'm standing next to it, and it's waist high, or maybe even a little higher than waist high. And right next to it is what used to be a uh, sugar maple tree. And when this ash came down, it took off the top of that and most of the branches. And then there were a couple of other smaller trees that the ash brought down as it fell. And some of those are still, you can see it just lying crushed underneath it here. And that's pretty typical. When a big tree comes down, it usually takes a lot of other things with it. And coming back here, right after it falls, it just smells of torn up wood and torn up vegetation. And in fact, that's how beetles find the, the tree. I mean, if I was a human, I'd come here, we find it with my eyes and then notice the smell. But there are beetles hanging around all around us waiting for that smell of, of torn up wood. And there's a succession, you know, some species are the colonists and often those are the ones that are coming with the beetles. And then there are other species, you know, once it starts decomposing, they just blow in on the wind and land and, and, and start taking over. It's a tremendous store of uh, defenseless energy, right? I mean, it's uh, for, for, for things that are suited to... Exactly. Well, this all this wood is made from uh, cellulose and lignin, which is essentially a bunch of sugar molecules joined together. So this is one huge cake lying here in the woods. But most creatures don't have the gut to digest it. What is that? The sound? Yeah. That is the sound of an ash beetle chewing on the wood. David, oh, wow. That was David's recording of the little mandibles, <laughs> that thing that sounds like a rocking chair squeaking or mandibles scraping away at the wood. I was laughing because I'd never heard anyone mean that expression literally. Most creatures don't have the gut to digest it. Other insects don't have the guts to do this. So now when I hear that expression from now on, I'm going to take it literally. You don't have the guts to break down cellulose. That's why you don't eat dead trees. Don't try it. You don't have the guts. Some of the beetles bring fungi with them and act as farmers. Uh, they, they plant the fungi and come back and harvest them later. So they invented agriculture millions of years before we did. So the fungi are the ones, and a few of the bacteria are the ones that have that special enzyme that allows them to to decompose the wood. And when they can do that, they can release all this frozen sunlight. I mean, all of this wood, of course, was created out of air and sun energy. And so there's a huge amount of material and energy all locked up in here that's, that's going to take a while for, uh, to decompose and to suffuse out into the, rest of the, uh, into the rest of the forest ecosystem. The network that it brings into being after it's dead is as rich and as species rich and as dynamic as the network that it encouraged during life. And so that made me think about this life, death, afterlife thing for trees in a different way. As, you know, we're humans, when we die, our bodies have a very short afterlife. But for trees, their bodies can take decades to decompose. And they bring about an extraordinary amount of life. So they are uh, hubs for network connection. And a pileated woodpecker is greeting us, that call from up there. And pileated woodpeckers 
rely on these downed logs for their food. They love carpenter ants and other things on, on downed wood. So we're, uh, we're messing around with that uh, woodpecker's lunch spot here. We've disrupted the woodpecker's lunch. I wouldn't have noticed this, but David is exquisitely attuned to the connections within the forest, what he calls the network. And within this network, even the tiniest changes are significant. I thought I had found something new when I found a tiny seed sprouting out of the top of the green ash log, but David already knew because it wasn't there last year. This is the first year that I've seen little plants starting to germinate oh, from on the tree itself. It also seems, at least right now, a little isolated. I mean, it's off the ground. It's not, mm -hmm. it's not in touch fully with the, the network, right? Or is it? Yeah, well, it's in touch with a different network. The, the main problem with germinating on a log like this is you're going to, if there's a drought, say later this year, mm -hmm. your roots are not in contact with good moist soil. This log could dry out. Um, pretty thoroughly if we had a month without rain. On the other hand, if you can make it, if you can get some roots down into the log or from the log to the ground, the log can be what's known as a nurse log. So the logs actually bring about new life more effectively than a seed mm. landing away from the log on the ground. That's partly because they're protected from, whoa, from herbivores I just got stung by something. David risks the stinging insects and takes years of time not just to study this one fallen green ash tree in Tennessee. No, he does this all over the world in his latest book, The Songs of Trees, where he spends years visiting trees and getting to know their specific networks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And not just... What I love about it is that each chapter is a different tree. And most people go in thinking... Oh, a different species of tree. No, each, each chapter is a specific tree that he observed and sometimes attached uh, record, surface recorders to. Ultrasonic sounds that are coming from inside twigs. So when a twig gets droughted, when the water is running out inside a twig, the little columns of water that run through the twig's water vessels, the xylem vessels, start to break because they've, they've run out of water. There's no more coming from the roots. And that breakage creates little clicks and pops that are very, very, very quiet and they're very high-pitched. But if you put an ultrasound meter onto it, you can pick those up. So with the pine trees in the west, I plugged that ultrasound meter onto a twig of a ponderosa pine and followed it through the day. And in the morning, everything is fine. And then in the afternoon, The tree gets into more and more distress, it's running out of water, so the ultrasound really picks up and then it levels off in the evening when the sun goes down. Listening to trees with ultrasonic sound equipment seems pretty standard for a biologist, right? Because this is what we expect from scientists setting out with their equipment and notebooks into the forest to observe and record. But trees are not confined to forests. And for David, this is also the sound of nature. 
<laughs> so some good sounds of the city. That was Rizzo's dump truck going past, and that was a really low frequency sound, and that's very characteristic of a city. So the sound signature of cities is a great mire of low frequencies. 86 in Broadway in Manhattan, where David has been observing a calorie pear tree for the past several years. This is one of the trees that set me on the path towards the book. This was uh, the tree in Ecuador I'd been visiting for longer, and, and the one in Swanee I'd, I'd known for, for longer. But this was the first that I really started a notebook for, and then over, you know, over the next year made the decision, well, I should do this in some other places around the world. What I love is that this was one of our earliest interviews that we did together, and uh, I remember being on that, that northwest corner of 86 and Broadway, and at one point looking up and realizing that everybody was walking by was staring <laughs> at you and I holding these microphones up to this guy that they don't recognize, <laughs> talking about the magic of networks. <laughs> And all very intently watching a tree. Yeah, well, it's me exactly while watching a tree. And they can't. The New Yorkers can't figure out like who's famous here, the the guy or the tree. <laughs> yeah. And at this very moment, David is turning our attention not to the sights and smells of the tree, but instead, what it feels like to be in its presence. Right, the air tastes a little different here than it would in the intersection because there's a little bit less pollutant here. The air is still a little cooler here than it is out there because there's re-emission of, of heat from the sidewalk away from, from the tree. And each one of these leaves is a little sound reflector sending down short wavelength sounds back to us so the sound is a little brighter under this tree than out in the open here where all of the sound waves escape. Here you've got tens of thousands of little wax, waxy reflectors, sound reflectors above us that are selected for their frequencies. The other thing, you know, if the subway goes past now, we, you will feel certainly through the ground here and through the railing, but also you can feel it in the tree itself. You can feel the vibrations of the subway coming up into the tree and they actually arrive just before the sound because ground transmits the sound about 10 times faster than the air does. And then the tree, this for its whole life, this tree is probably about 40 years old. This subway has been here, it's one of the first subway stations in New York since about 1908, I think, or 1904. So the subway's been here for the, this tree's entire life. This tree has grown with the multiple time daily shaking of subways. And then of course we've had lots of trucks going by, they also vibrate the tree. So the wood in this tree has taken on the vibratory energy of the city. If it had grown somewhere else, the wood would have literally have a different structure to it. This, this tree is stiffer uh, to sway and bend. The wood in it is a little denser. The cells inside have got thicker walls. The roots have got extra strands of lignin and cellulose, which are very tough molecules to hold them in. So this, this, this tree is clinging to the ground a little tighter than it would otherwise. And then say if in 10 years, 20 years, someone made a guitar or a violin from this, when you heard that music, you would feel that. I can feel the subway in the tree. Yeah. Yeah. I'm feeling it actually in my palm, not so much in my fingers. Um, you would 
be hearing an echo of the subway in there. So every musical instrument is, is wood from a particular place. And nobody's going to make an instrument out of this particular street tree. It's got too many nails in it and bits of bubble gum and who knows what. But, and you don't make musical instruments out of pear wood. But the instrument is a memory, a timbered memory of a place. And so the sound is emerging from the ecology of a place. Interacting, of course, with a heck of a lot of amazing work by luthiers and musicians. So when you listen to musical instrument, it's trees connecting points of human consciousness. When you read a page, that page is, is connecting us. And even when we sit around the campfire, and this is probably where human uh, culture first emerged, we learned how to make fire, how to burn wood. And then when we're around a campfire, our blood pressure drops and the conversation turns to the realm of the imagination. The word was the, was the kindling of, of human culture. So again and again, it's not universally true, but trees are present right there at those points of connection. And we recognize that in our religious symbols, right? Trees are right at the center of Buddha's enlightenment, of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Again and again, in the Norse legends, trees are at the center. Not because the human species is completely centered around trees, but because trees are a very important part of our cultural networks. Wow. Yeah. Have you... <laughs> I forgot how mind-blowing that was. Have you ever heard a biologist talk about trees this way? Well, one of the things that David wrote about in his book, and he actually mentioned this to us, is that his interest in trees has led him to a kind of uh, apprenticeship. Swanee is um, in an area of Tennessee where there are a lot of respected instrument makers. And uh, he's taken him upon himself to dabble in this area. And the first thing that uh, he said that you do when you're choosing your slab of wood to make a fiddle, for instance, is you pick it up very lightly by two fingers and you knock on it. And then you do it with a few other pieces of wood until you find one that just feels right. But remember, you don't listen to it with your ears. You listen to it with your hand, right? Right. Yeah. With your, uh, was it the fingertips? I think so, yeah. So it's a vibration, you know, which makes sense. I mean, this sound is a vibration. Mm -hmm. He's not researching and writing for biologists. He's writing about, first of all, the process of observance. And it leads him towards the discovery of networks. And less steps than it usually takes for you to link, you know, yourself to somebody you know, to Kevin Bacon. David just linked... A fallen tree, to beetles, to woodpeckers, to subway cars, to musical instruments, to the birth of human culture and religion. Now, so because for David, all of life, every organism, every cell is in constant communication with its neighbors. But this view is a relatively new one and not the way science is usually taught. 
the structure of universities doesn't really mirror the structure of reality. So the human body, the human mind, human consciousness, emotions aren't divided into here's my little science bin, here's my chemistry department over here, my art department over there. No, bringing those people into conversation can yield new insights into how the forest functions. And I also think it can yield new insights into what it means to be an ethical being. So much of environmental ethics, it seems to me to be removed from first-hand experience of the forest or the ocean. It's, here are some abstract ethical schema from the seminar room that we're going to then impose on the landscape. We're so far removed from lived experience in the forest, it then puts a particular ethical mandate on us to then go and talk to people and listen to people who have that direct experience. Those voices need to be heard, not just as a sort of management strategy, but as a strategy of listening to the land itself. If we're not doing that listening, we'll make decisions and there'll be consequences, but those are likely to be not as wise as they could have been otherwise. Well, the idea in biology for years has been such an atomistic view of, of life and that the individual is what matters, the individual is what is the, uh, the substrate of life, if you like. And the study of biology, therefore, is the study of how those atoms interact and then replicate themselves in, into future generations. So the idea that life is not just networked, but in fact made from network, shifts our perspective and says, the fundamental nature of life isn't atoms, isn't individuals or selves. The fundamental nature is relationship, is connection. So one of the reasons I picked trees for this book is that they are such amazing examples of what it means for life to be made from networked connection. Even a leaf, like a leaf of a tree on the street or a sugar maple out in a suburban yard, we think of that leaf as, well, it's a sugar maple or it's a calorie pear leaf. In fact, no, that leaf is made from hundreds of bacterial cells, hundreds of different species of bacterial cells, actually millions of individual cells, as well as the plant cells. And the leaf has its existence only because of the relationships among those cells. And if those relationships are taken away, the leaf can't exist. And the same is true even at the level of the individual plant cells, because every plant cell has its own genome and then it has a little hitchhiker within it, the chloroplast, that is what gives the plant its green color and its ability to photosynthesize. So a plant cell itself is a set of living relationships embedded within a larger set that's the leaf and then a larger set that is the tree and then of course the tree is embedded within a forest or a city or some other ecosystem. And when those relationships are severed, when they break, then the individual literally falls out of existence, dies. This really got my attention because it reminded me that all life is powered by cooperative partnership. In plants, these were chloroplast, which was at one time some kind of bacterial. And in animals, these are mitochondria, which were at one time free-ranging bacterial cells that worked out a deal with other cells. It's essentially a parasite, but one we utterly depend upon. Not even to mention the bacterial cells that outnumber your human cells 10 to 1, 
but who do all sorts of important work for us. Wait, 10 to 1? Yeah. So, wait. Hold. So, we're mostly bacteria. You're most, you are mostly bacteria, especially you. You may be 11 to 1. That's messed up. It's there is more by number. You are more bacteria than you are human because bacterial cells are very, very, very small. Right from the beginning, this is all part of that idea that uh, that David keeps coming back to about network and relationship and everything being a, 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 a cooperative effort of sorts. Is that we like to think of ourselves as individual. Every human cell in your body. I mean, forget the bacteria for a minute that outnumber you. Every cell in your body is powered by a mitochondrial cell which has its own dna it was at one time a bacterium and it's just kind of stayed that way because that's been a great deal for both parties ever since you know starting you know four billion years ago or something this is down to the down to that level we are all we each contain multitudes there's no other way to put it (laughs) and we are all an aggregate of all of this other stuff that all have their own little histories and have their own, in the case of mitochondria and with chloroplast, their own DNA. I'm not entirely sure I grasped everything that you just said, but my mind is nonetheless blown. <laughs> <laughs> I am trying to say that you are, that bacteria is more important than you are. That's what I'm trying to say. Well, that, that I get. Okay. All right. As long as you got that part, we can move on. Understanding the nature of these interactions, understanding um, the complexity of this network could power a revolution in learning with the forest ecosystems as the teacher. Forests have been around for 400 million years. So forest is an incredibly complex and ancient network of community interactions, information flow. And I'm hoping we can actually attend to that to, to pick up some good ideas. How might human networks benefit from that? How can we avoid getting overrun by pathogens, right? Our email systems, Twitter, and so on. Every network faces that challenge of having to negotiate between those two poles. You can't exist at either extreme. If you're completely walled off, you're dead. If you're completely open, you're overrun and will shortly be dead. So life has figured this out. Every species has its own strategy of dealing with that. And we're, you know, our electronic networks are only a few decades old compared to 400 million years or maybe even 4 billion years for, for living networks. So there's some, some wisdom there and some good ideas that I think we could tap. In the summertime, you see fireflies. You have these little points of light flashing through the forest and you pick them up and they're cool. And yet my flashlight bulb or my phone in my pocket that I might be using to light my way, that's hot. And so here we have this industrial design that is incredibly wasteful. Most of the energy is being dissipated as heat in that flashlight because the flashlight developed in an era of of super abundant free chemical energy. And so we've had no incentive to make it super efficient. Whereas that beetle is using hard-won food to make the flash from from its butt from the from the firefly's lantern and there is an extremely high uh, selection pressure not to waste energy and so they have developed this biochemical method that uses an awful lot of the energy and emits it as light not as heat and so that i mean i think that's a pretty clear contrast between the efficiencies that you see in evolved organisms compared to the inefficiencies in uh, our 
current industrial inventions. You know, a motor car is the same way. I mean, 99% of the energy is used to move the vehicle, not the occupants. It's absurd. Or when a, a lion is running across uh, the savannah or a squirrel climbing up a tree, it's not wasting 99% of its energy moving things that don't need to be moved. Mother Nature is the mother of invention. Nature can't afford to be wasteful. You know, someone else said, God never wastes a gesture. Everything in nature works, does something, or it leads to something else. Nothing just gets trashed. Mm -hmm. So if we are a part of nature, what is our skill? What, what do we do that is more creative than just building more and more efficient engines? We communicate. And when we all gather together in one place, like a city, something very interesting happens. That is the essence of network, which is why the word hub as a metaphor for network works in this case as a hub for human creativity. For the human community in cities, when you double the size of a city, you more than double the rate of human interactions, like it's, it's including violent, I mean, violence and disease, but also positive things like number of new patents, the amount of creativity. And that's what we refer to as superlinearity. The curve goes, it's not a straight line, it zips up. And then you double the size of the city again, and you more than double the amount of creativity. And the number of people that people have in their social networks, if you just look at someone's address book in their phone or you know, keep it on a, on a piece of paper, it more than doubles with the size of the city. And the, the infrastructure of the city less than doubles, so it's more efficient in terms of resource use. So cities have this paradox in that uh, the richness of human interaction increases, but the amount of resources we're using per capita per person decreases. So the average New York or the average person in the city of New York has one-third the carbon footprint of your an average American. Well, that's one of the things that I love about living in New York City um, for all of the drawbacks, you know, the super crowded, the expense, you know, all of that. The smells. The smells, yeah. Is that you and I, we go see art um, of very, a lot of different styles and, and, and forms and mediums. Um, we meet people that don't do what we do on a daily basis, and that somehow informs us. But David can look at the forest floor, for example, and see a network that is just, well, not just as complicated, more complicated, more creative, but probably not as fast moving, but something that's much more efficient, something that is much, much, much more um, nuanced and sophisticated. Um, and, you know, I always like to end these things with a lesson. Um, what did you learn about creativity from, from David? I think it goes part and parcel, particularly for someone who lives in a city, but, but really for everyone, because I think it's important to realize that the human brain is designed to filter out information or to sort information on a subconscious level. So to force oneself to sit and really observe or to at least have the patience to really listen to the extent that you start to notice things that you had been filtering out before. 
It's meditation. Yeah, it's meditation. Mm -hmm. And it's very important for the busy modern adult mind to do. Because when you don't have the presence of mind to truly listen, to take in, to see the individuality and the, the magic in what the atomized individual is bringing to the group, you become an asshole. <laughs> you do. And I don't think that it is possible to really appreciate what a network is and to not take that for granted unless you have the presence to be able to sit outside of it and observe it for a little bit the way that David has in this entire book. Mm -hmm. I laughed about the asshole remark because that reminded me, you've probably heard the story in Africa, there's a there's a, a some tribe that when someone is acting out, someone is uh, misbehaving, not being a part of the group, being an asshole, mm -hmm. they don't, instead of punishing the person, they all sit, they all get together in a group and sit around him and tell him stories about him and tell him stories about, remember that time you did this? Remember that time that you helped me do this, blah, blah, blah. And they just remind him, you're a part of the group. You're a part of the network. Oh, instead of shaming him. Instead of shaming him, they remind him, they know why he's being an asshole. He's an asshole because he's something, something's happened in his mind and he's disassociating himself from the network. Hmm. And, and I just, when you said that, it reminded me like that is absolutely true. That's kind of the definition of an asshole is someone who's sort of decides they're going to go it alone, screw everybody else. You know, it's like, no, 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 that's not, we, that, you've just upset the harmony <laughs> that the network needs to sort of get through its day, you know, unstressed. Stress. We tend to focus mostly on our own and maybe the stress of a few other important individuals in our lives and maybe our pets too. But stress is one of the many things that all living beings have in common. Remember that calorie pear tree on 86 and Broadway? It feels stress. And just like you and me, it does better when it feels connected, when it's treated well, when it's given personhood. If a tree is planted by municipal workers, uh, just without any fanfare, any extra programs, that tree has maybe a 50-50 chance of being there in 10 years. So not great odds, right, for a sapling to actually make it. But if you plant that tree involving people from the neighborhood and put a little tag on it and say, hi, I'm a London plane tree. I'd appreciate if your dog didn't poop here. Don't lock your bike to me. Give me a little water in the summertime. So we, we raise that tree in our awareness. We give it personhood in the human social network its probability of survival goes almost 100%. So by just by giving the tree attention, we didn't give it anything special in the planting hole. It's just by raising it in human awareness, you give the tree life. This isn't some abstract concept or some kind of new age extrapolation. This is the lived reality of, of the tree itself. It sort of matters, life or death depends on whether it has personhood in, in the neighborhood. In other words, be a good neighbor. Regardless of what the politicians tell us, we are all in a relationship. So, get outside, 
and listen. Drop your expectations and realize that you and your trillions of bacterial cells and trees and Kevin Bacon and the guy making you mad for sitting too long at a green light, we are all networked. Our success, our lives depend on each other for survival. The Well is recorded, produced, and edited by Anson Mount and myself, Brandon Edgens. Our deepest gratitude goes to Dr. David Haskell for his generous donation of time to this episode, and also for the use of his field recordings of munching beetles, distressed pine twigs, subway rumbles, and violin sounds. Theme music by Jonathan Myberg. Additional music by Lee Rusevier, Laura Sheeran, and Brandon Edgens. You can find more info about them at our website, thewellpod.com. And if you really like the show, you can help us out by giving us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd really appreciate it. Have a great week.